one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 277, A Firm Hand. Quick plug for a YouTube series I have done with extra credits before we start. It's a six-parter on the Hundred Years' War and extra credits put these brilliant bean characters alongside it. It's fab, though I do say so myself. Just search for YouTube Extra credits, 100 Years War, or come to the History of England website for a link. Last time then, we heard something of Mary's unhappy life, her failed pregnancy, the departure of her beloved Philip to the continent, where he began to play around a bit, and also demand a coronation as the price of his return. We heard about resistance in Parliament to some parts of Mary's campaign to bring England back to Rome, but also heard about how Paul was looking for much more than a simple return to the past. He was looking to revitalise Catholicism in England. While Paul and his clerical assembly were discussing how to do that, the carrot, if you like, the acceptable face of Marian Catholicism, the other face, or the stick, if you like, was being deployed with increasing ferocity. So, just to break the fourth wall for a moment, or is it the fifth wall? However many walls there are, just to break it, let me say that I think I'm going to partially step aside from the chronology just for a moment and let's take the discussion about religion all the way through to the end of Mary's reign. Otherwise, it'll, you know, it'll be hanging around over us all the time. So let's just get it sorted and done here in this episode. So back behind the wall then, if you like. In the first six months of 1556, 66 Protestants were burned and in the year as a whole, 88 went to their deaths. In January 1556, the council decreed that the Queen's pardon should no longer be offered at the stake because of the contempt with which the offer was uniformly received by the victims. And it became increasingly clear that the burnings were a double-edged sword. The tactic in 1555 and early 1556 was very much about shock and awe, as well as about punishment. Executions were often held in the condemned own parish so that their neighbours could see the awful consequences of their actions. But of course, that tended to heighten the support those people received as well, because these were people well known locally, and so support for evangelicalism began to come together with local loyalty and resistance to outsiders, which was unfortunate as far as Paul and Mary were concerned. Often this showed itself by shouts of support, and that sort of thing, but sometimes the support was more active. So, as an example, let me take you to Laxfield in Suffolk in September 1556 and the execution of John Noyes. Fire was needed to start the blaze, of course, and so the sheriff sent his men off to find hot coals to start the blaze from neighbouring houses, which should be pretty straightforward. Everybody held a fire. 
but the locals hurried back to their houses first, and at house after house, the fires were doused before the sheriff's men could get inside and take a coal, until in the end, the officers were just able to get to the last house and break the door down and get a hot coal before the locals could douse it. Now, it's important to put this persecution into context. Early modern Europe could be a brutal place for those who stepped outside the law. From the 1540s, England was in the grip of a massive increase in population, and at the same time, a period of economic dislocation. Failed harvests in particular plagued Mary's reign. All of this led to an increase in vagrancy, and mobility in Tudor England was not the norm. The vast majority of people were supposed to stay in their parish. If they fell on hard times, it was their own parish, church, family, neighbours that should support them. Vagrancy threatened the very basis of Tudor society. But there were just too many poor now. It could be that 40% of the inhabitants of a parish were in the poor category, and many of those just could not find work locally, and they simply had to move. All of this created an unusual and most untypical fear of the poor and a fear of social upheaval and breakdown. From being a group almost touched by Christ's own poverty, the poor, or at least the vagrant poor, became something to be feared, a many-headed monster that could overwhelm society at any moment. The physical threat from the poor was almost certainly more perceived than real, such violence as there was overwhelmingly occurred against property rather than people. Most, it was about survival. But that doesn't mean that the perception was very real and very vibrant. So, society was racked by a fear of the hydra-headed monster of an uncontrollable wave of poor and social breakdown. Any general statement about the number of people executed is to be treated with extreme caution, even scepticism, such as that bogus figure about Henry VIII's executions against which I have railed in the past and shall rail against no longer. But what is clear enough is that the number of indictments for crime rise through Mary, Elizabeth and James I's reigns. This is a difficult time for society and population growth, as for so much in history, is at the heart of it. Another point for now is that in Tudor society, people were used to executions. They were used to the gallows, and their sensibilities about executions were very different to what ours might be. Nonetheless, the Royal Council began to understand that the tactic of local executions had its downside. It might well induce terror, but it might well also engender revulsion. And so tactics began to change and executions began to be held en masse in regional centres instead, choosing places where the bishop felt more secure and where the victims were taken away from their own parish and supporters. Local gentry were urged to gather together and all walk into the place of executions at the start to show their support for the action. Preachers exhorted the crowd that these executions were deserved, they were just. At Lewis, in June 1556, Six people were burned together at the same time, and a year later, a further ten were burned together. Overall in Lewis, 17 were burned, and the result, along with the gunpowder plot of 1605, is an annual bonfire event in Lewis that goes on to this day and is absolute chaos, with tens of thousands pouring into a relatively small town with different groups and processions and burning effigies and all, and I assume a deal of alcohol to boot. I mean, why wouldn't there be? 
large events like this then, and similar occasions, particularly in Smithfield and Canterbury, but also events like the three women burning in Guernsey in July 1556, left long, long memories and legacies of hatred. By the end of the campaign in 1558, the strategists of the campaign, as Eamon Duffy described them, such as John Storey, suggested that even this idea of taking the victims away to a regional centre where events could be stage-managed and controlled better was still exciting too much support. And a third way was agreed, where condemned heretics should be sent for execution into odd corners into the country. At the end of June 1558, Bishop Bonner wrote to Cardinal Paul, therefore, suggesting that six Islington Protestants should be quietly burned elsewhere, bearing in mind the unhelpful scenes the last Islington burning had drawn. And so they were duly transported away and executed at Brentford. This suggests a couple of things, that the authorities were indeed worried about the backlash, but it also suggests no let-up in the determination to press the campaign to its conclusion, wherever that conclusion might be. It's been said that the campaign of terror was rather unsophisticated in its use of printing, and that is true to a degree, but there were writers around. Catholic writer Miles Hugard mocked the condemned evangelicals and their supporters, laughing at them as credulous and superstitious, rooting around like pigs in a sty to collect the ashes and bones of their burned loved ones. The language of both sides throughout the Reformation and its aftermath makes modern political arguments on Twitter look like a vicar's tea party. The determination to win this war also led to many of its prosecutors into deeply morally ambiguous situations, since some of those persecutors had once been part of the Edwardian church, which, as you know, burnt nobody and was very much Protestant in nature. So, let me take you to Gloucester in May 1556, where the prosecutor was John Williams. John Williams was interrogating a young lad called Thomas Drowry, described as the blind boy of Gloucester. Williams demanded to know who had taught the boy these terrible heresies. And Thomas was a bit confused by this, because it was Williams himself who had taught him these terrible heresies. Thomas was in fact able to cite in detail a cathedral sermon in which William had delivered these terrible heresies. Williams was understandably embarrassed, and he suggested, Then do as I have done, and thou shalt live as I do, and escape burning. Thomas, however, was made of purer stuff than this, and he refused to recant, and so Williams condemned him over the horror of the diocesan registrar, who protested, Fie for shame, man! Will you read the sentence against him, and condemn him yourself? Thomas was indeed burned, though. The driving force of the campaign was undoubtedly Mary. But although Fox was inclined to minimise his role, Poole also did very little to tone it down or indeed prevent it. But the Royal Council were every bit as keen to prosecute the campaign as both of them. Quite apart from enforcing the law of the land and government policy, the campaign could helpfully be used in other ways. So there are examples of Richard Rich, for example, using the campaign to conveniently settle a few scores. The council could be relentless. In one instance, a man called Thomas Benbridge was reprieved from burning locally because of a hideously botched job 
where the fire just would not burn and the poor man was partially burned more than once and so they decided that enough was enough. The council, though, when they heard of it, would not hear of such mercy. They were livid and told them to finish the job and stop messing about. And so Bembridge, having been reprieved, was burned again. And once again, it was a botched job and he died in agony. At times, the excesses of fanaticism stray into the ridiculous. Before he arrived in England, Poole had seriously considered exhuming all known heretics and burning their remains, but sensibly, he decided against such a macabre horror. And indeed, 40 years later, one of Mary's royal councillors in exile in Spain told the story that Mary, urged on by Poole, commanded him and other courtiers secretly to exhume the body of her father. Good Lord. In fact, there were examples where bodies were publicly exhumed and burned. In January 1557 at Cambridge University, the bodies of Martin Butcher and Paul Fagius were dug up and taken to the marketplace. A large crowd gathered to watch as their coffins were chained to a stake and burned, together with a pile of their books. In 1556 and 57, there were propaganda disasters for Mary and Paul, and one of those, of course, was our own Thomas Cranmer, which is one occasion where it is fair enough to present Mary as vindictive and vengeful, and by so doing, she snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. But there were also propaganda victories, and one of these was the affair of John Cheek. Although Cheek was not quite Cranmer, he was a major figure, a fine scholar, and one of the leading thinkers of the Reformation, and a tutor, of course, to King Edward. He'd fled to the continent, but in May 1556, Mary's agents captured him near Antwerp along with another, and according to John Ponnet, clapped into a cart, their legs, arms and bodies tied with halters to the body of the cart, and so carried to the seaside. Once in London, he was put in the tower, and Freckenham and Paul worked to bring him back to the Catholic faith. Cheek was ill, his family was heavily in debt, and these final conversations and persuasions, along with the threat of burning, broke him, and he agreed to recant. He would also, incidentally, end his life a year later with his debts cleared and a tidy sum from the government, so you have to think the money played its part. Either way, he agreed. In July, he wrote to Mary, promising to obey her law and practice Roman Catholicism, but he also begged to be spared the hideous humiliation of a public recantation. For Mary, of course, this would be entirely beside the point. The value of Cheek's submission was to break not just his will, but the will of Protestants generally. And so he was forced to make a very public and very humiliating recantation before the assembled court in October. There has been a long debate over the centuries about who won this battle. The intellectual struggle divides predictably along confessional lines, with Catholic historians such as Damon Duffy contending that by the end of 1558, the Catholic Reformation and the persecutions were working. That had Mary just bitten the bullet and killed Elizabeth and arranged a Catholic succession, there would have been more difficulties and upset to come, sure. But in his words, the English history books might well have been full of the praises of the golden days of good Queen Mary. To try and answer the question, we should know a bit more about the Protestant response. Just as there had been in the time of Henry, prescribed texts and propaganda came into England from the continent, and this time around there were more homegrown Protestants living abroad to carry on the fight, namely the Marian exiles. 
authors like John Ponnet, as already mentioned, and Christopher Goodman, wrote with the message that Protestants had the right to resist the monarch they considered to have become a tyrant. There were other authors too, such as, famously, John Knox and his first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women, which was aimed at the Catholic monarchs Mary Queen of Scots and Mary Tudor, a title which has not aged well, and which will become distinctly inconvenient when Protestant Queen Elizabeth hits the throne. The message was the same, though, that the English had the right to resist. And meanwhile, texts were smuggled out of prison and circulated and copied, and secret local printers produced pamphlets and tracts. As it happens, one of these was again from the outwardly compliant William Cecil. Cecil owned land in the little Lincolnshire village of Barholm, and there he set up a printer called John Day, who had been very active in Edward's reign. Day opened the bidding with a book targeted at Stephen Gardner on the very day of Mary's coronation, followed by seven other titles. He was caught, though, and closed down in October 1554, but he resurfaced again in 1556. There is very little sign at all that the authorities really got a handle on this and managed to enforce censorship despite multiple book burnings, nor that it was reducing in 1558. So, for example... A royal proclamation was issued as late as June 1558, complaining of the wave of books filled with both heresy, sedition and treason, which continued to be smuggled in from abroad. Any person found possessing one could immediately be executed as a rebel, according to the order of martial law. Peter Marshall, whose book Heretics and Believers I have recommended before, and will no doubt do so again, also makes the point that there was almost a sense of relief amongst evangelicals, extraordinary as that may sound. This was territory they were used to, that they had been through under Henry. Resistance to oppression, this was clean air, much simpler than the complex, compromised air of government, where they'd all had to argue about whether the Reformation under Cranmer had gone far enough. And many of those theological differences, which would be a problem in England for, well, I don't know, the next 400 years or so, melted away in the crisis. The leaders at home and abroad of the Protestant communities were pretty successful in maintaining unity around the Book of Common Prayer and Cranmer's Reformation. As I have already covered, they were also very effective in linking anti-Spanish feeling with Protestantism. And so that link was first forged that would last through the 16th century. However, it is also worth noting that the distribution of the executions was very uneven very sparse indeed in the North and Midlands, nothing at all in Wales. Now this could reflect the willingness of the authorities there to prosecute, but it's very likely also that the distribution of burnings reflected the places where Protestantism had won most support, namely London and the South East. And conversely, that outside of that area, the roots of Protestantism were much less securely founded. Tie that together with the slow but consistent progress of the rebuilding of the fabric of Catholicism in churches and parishes, and you're left with the sure knowledge that at least, at very least, the resistance to Catholicism was very far from universal, and the reintroduction of Catholicism was welcomed by many. And finally, there are the actual numbers of the prosecution. There was no let-up in the ferocity of the repression in 1555-7, to the numbers for those three years are 76, 88 and 79. There were a few variations about the split in terms of months. And then in 1558, in 11 months, 
there are 41 executions. So, why the drop-off? Now, to Eamon Duffy, it is because, in his words again, the half-convinced and the cowardly were running for cover. The war was being won. To set against that are the arguments that 1558 was a massively disrupted year, both politically, where the drivers of the campaign and the Royal Council were distracted by war and Mary's death, and because there was a massive influenza epidemic in that year, which has a big effect on England's population and indeed on everyone's lives. We might note also that, as I've just covered, there was no sign that Mary's government themselves thought they were an imminent site of victory in 1558. And indeed, in November 1558, there were 10 executions in that month alone, far and away more than in the same month in the previous three years. So, who knows who can tell, but we could return to the question at the end of Mary's reign. But either way, you have a framework, hopefully, a background to the trouble and strife that formed the backdrop to the political events of the reign. To which political events we should now return. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mary remained unhappy at Philip's absence, unsurprisingly, and keen for him to return. As far as Philip was concerned, he must be taken more serious in England and promised a coronation, and if not, well then, he had more important things to do in the Low Countries and in his empire, thank you for asking. Mary wrote to her mentor, Charles V, asking him to intercede, and Charles did just that. But Charles was moving steadily into King Lear territory. In January 1556, he handed control of Spain over to Philip, and since most of the practical Holy Roman Emperor work was already being done by his successor there, Brother Ferdinand, it seems increasingly that Charles's letters were largely being filed under B1N. Not only was Philip focused on his impressive portfolio of territories, impressive and probably time-consuming, but he had the Imperial War of France to deal with as well, which was seriously not going well. Given England's refusal to give him the influence he wanted or join him in his war, his policy towards the country of which he was king was not noticeably friendly or indeed helpful. He unhelpfully banned English merchants from trading with Spain's South American colonies and prohibited English attempts to trade on the African coast. Thank you, King. None of this helped the mood in London, and in fact the corporation of London's attitude towards Mary and her husband might be described as sullen. Protestantism was strong among London traders, and they had a point when they moaned that Mary was more concerned with supporting her husband than supporting her subjects. They complained to Mary that whenever there was a dispute between English and Flemish merchants, the King of England sided with the Flemish, and their complaint got nowhere slowly. In this atmosphere, a chap called Henry Dudley was doing that thing that birds and conspirators do. He was hatching. Dudley was a distant relative of the Duke of Northumberland and Nine Days Queen Dudleys. 
In that particular face-off, he'd been sent by Northumberland to persuade the French king to intervene on Queen Jane's side, so we know what side he's on. And the arrival of Philip had not lightened his mood. So he did a little more sidling with the French king and suggested that one way of weakening his imperial opponent Philip would be to remove both him and the queen from the English throne. And this seemed, on balance, a good thing to Henry II of France and money was to be forthcoming for Dudley's plan. Great, thought Dudley, let's go and find some supporters. And the conspiracy duly spread. A prile of various branches of the Throckmorton family, if that's the correct collective noun for people called Throckmorton, John, John and Nicholas. A Courtney, William by name. And amongst some others, Anthony Kingston, the locker of parliamentary doors as we heard two weeks ago. One of them was a thoroughgoing Lady Elizabeth enthusiast and adventurer called Christopher Ashton. I tell you true that the Lady Elizabeth is a jolly liberal dame and nothing so unthankful as her sister is. These gents were lined up to raise their various countries when the time came. By country, I of course mean in 16th century parlance, their local shire. Dudley, meanwhile, secretly worked his contacts in England and lined up a safe harbour. Lowestoft in Suffolk, which is broadly sort of lower right, for an invasion force. Into this came the rather unfortunate Treaty of Vorselles, a peace treaty between the Empire and France. I say unfortunate from Dudley's perspective, although the Treaty of Vorselles was also unfortunate in that it was to prove a weak, sickly sort of child, but it did nix French funding for the moment, though in the sneaky way of international diplomacy, the French didn't actively prevent Dudley from trying to launch an invasion of England from France. In fact, Ambassador Nui was involved with Dudley, advising the rebels, at one point trying to keep the Princess Elizabeth's name out of it until the last moment, probably alarmed at the freedom with which folks like Ashton referenced her. Restrain, Madame Elizabeth, from stirring at all in the affair of which you have written to me, for that would be to ruin everything. But now, although all his co-conspirators were lined up and ready to go, Dudley needed spondulikes. He needed money. Now, he happened to know where £50,000 might be got hold of, because there happened to be £50,000 sitting in the exchequer in coin. And he knew there was £50,000 sitting in coin in the exchequer because he had a mate there, a mate called William Huns. William Huns knew the chap in charge of the money itself, Nicholas Brigham. He was very friendly with Nicholas Brigham, in fact, though the reason for all this friendliness was that Mrs Margaret Brigham and William Huns were romantically involved. Now, Huns knew that Nicholas was incorruptible, as well as clearly not very observant. But it seems that Margaret was corruptible and she was able to make an impression of her husband's key to the strong room where all that lovely lolly was held. The copy of the key was made, plans were constructed and before you could say freedom, there they were in the strong room. Sadly, this all turned out to be the basis for a carry-on movie because they then found they could not open the chests of coin, which speaks of genuinely lamentable planning. And so off they had to leave. Now the game was up because another conspirator spilled the beans to Reginald Poole. Mary put the investigation into the hands of her nearest and dearest, the people she felt able to trust most, 
her household from the good old days at Framlingham, Messrs Rochester and Jermingham. Twenty people were subsequently arrested and once more Elizabeth's life and liberty was at threat. Cat Ashley and some other women of her household were arrested as well and an armed guard placed on her household and a search of Cat's chambers found a cache of illicit books and pamphlets attacking Catholicism and mocking the King and Queen. And yet, instead of being hauled in to face interrogation yet again, no action was taken against Elizabeth and the reason seems to be that Philip advised Mary against it. Because for Philip, you see, Killing Elizabeth was not a great option. If Mary died and Elizabeth had been executed, then the heir to the throne of England was Mary, Queen of Scots. And Mary, Queen of Scots, was married to one Francis, who just happened to be Francis the Dauphin of France. So, without Elizabeth in the way, Mary's death would be a double imperial whammy. France, the great enemy, would gain England and Scotland. In fact, a triple whammy, because, of course, Philip would lose England. You can hardly blame Philip, I suppose, but you might note his priorities here. English xenophobia was once more demonstrating that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Anyway, once more Elizabeth survived another scare. However, she was again put under supervision, Sir Thomas Pope, a privy councillor and staunch Catholic, was put in charge of her household. In response, Elizabeth kept churning out the letters of loyalty and she must have wished word processors had been invented she could just cut and paste. But she would find out that Philip may have reprieved her but that didn't mean he wanted her to be free to do as she pleased. However, her conspirators did not escape so easily. Ten of them were eventually executed, leaving bits of them distributed around the kingdom pour discourager les autres and Anthony Dorlock of Kingston died on his way to London for an interview which was unlikely to go well for him. Christopher Ashton fled and took up life as a pirate until run down by Mary's navy. On the wages of sin theme though, William Huns and Margaret Brigham seem to come out of the whole thing smelling of roses. Nicholas Brigham died in 1558 and William and Margaret were then hitched, which seems to rather confirm that the don't get caught theoretical model rather than the wages of sin is death model is king, since the wages of sin here appears to be not death but marriage. Still, the conspiracy could hardly have been worse timed for Mary. The continuing pain of the heresy campaign, the disastrous affair of Cranmer's burning in March, Philip's dogged absence, and now this. Noai was banished, but reported back that the Queen, raged against her subjects, she is utterly confounded by the faithlessness of those whom she most trusted. In her misery, Mary turned ever more to Cardinal Poole. Now that Thomas Cranmer had been finally destroyed, Poole could become Archbishop of Canterbury officially. But Mary was too anxious to be parted from him and would not allow him to go to Canterbury to be consecrated, thereby leaving her side. And so Reginald was consecrated at Greenwich. And in Poole, you can see that there was the greatest meeting of minds and comfort for Mary. The two of them joined in their passion for their mission. On Maundy, Thursday, the 3rd of April, 1556, Poole accompanied Mary on a thoroughly traditional royal religious ceremony where Mary washed the feet of poor women. And then on Good Friday, she carried out the ceremony of touching for the king's evil, using the ancient royal power to cure scrofula. 
Poole and his entourage were delighted at their queen. Poole's secretary wrote, I dare assert there never was a queen in Christendom of greater goodness than this one. The occasion is important in lending further colour to Mary's great piety, but also because by this ceremony Mary placed another mighty stone in the temple of the equality of English queens. Here was a ceremony traditionally part of kingship, and Mary had made it clear that if a king could do it, so could a queen. A queen was every bit as mighty as a king. Touching for scrofula has something of a magical quality to it, the touch of God's very own grace. And now that mystical quality firmly belonged to queens as well as to kings. Again, it's a positive part of Mary's legacy and one from which Elizabeth will benefit greatly. The ceremony must have given Mary some much-needed reassurance and a harbour from the rough seas for a while, but despite this, the Venetian ambassador confirmed that trouble weighed Mary down. For many months, the Queen has passed from one sorrow to another. Your serenity can imagine what life she leads, comforting herself as usual with the presence of Cardinal Poole, to whose assiduous toil and diligence, having entrusted the whole government of the kingdom, she is intent on enduring her trouble as patiently as she can. But all these worries had an impact on Mary. The Queen's face has lost flesh greatly since I was last with her. The extreme need she has of the consort's presence harassing her, she having also, within the last few days, lost her sleep. As the year progressed, Mary's despair and frustration grew. Her ambassador asked for confirmation from Philip of when he would return, and he received nothing but vague, non-committal replies. The ambassador even risked pointing out that there was still plenty of chance for heirs if Philip could return and do his, you know, do his duty, if he could lie back and think of England, that sort of thing. Eventually, Mary sent the most powerful force on the Royal Council, William Paget, to plead with her husband as a sign of just how important this was, but Philip simply ignored him. In July, her letters to Charles became a mixture of entreaty, reproach and despair. It would be pleasanter for me to thank your majesty for sending me back my king, my lord and my good husband than to dispatch an emissary to Flanders. However, as your majesty has been pleased to break your promise in this connection, a promise you made to me regarding the return of the king, my husband... I must perforce be satisfied, although to my unspeakable regret. Interesting to see that Charles was bad at returning books as well, but given the strength of Mary's gratitude to Charles for his support throughout her life, this is actually a pretty extraordinary letter of criticism. In fact, Mary was being less than fair to Charles, who was himself now effectively powerless. Mary seems to have herself felt that she could not cope with the pressures of queenship on her own and must have Philip back to help, or all would be lost. Here again are her own words, written once more to Charles. Unless he comes to remedy matters, not only I, but wiser persons than I, fear that great danger will ensue for lack of a firm hand. And indeed, we see it before our eyes. It's a little difficult to see exactly what it was before Mary and her advisers' eyes. As far as the administrative record is concerned, the Royal Council and her work with them seems to have been going just fine. Dudley's conspiracy had been a shock, but had been easily contained. There was no Parliament in 1556 to cause toil and trouble. 
the appointment of Poole's arch-enemy as Paul IV was worrying, but actually both Poole and Paul and Paul and Poole had been tooth-achingly polite to each other. But despite that, Mary's state of mind was increasingly desperate. She was seen to scratch at the picture of her husband in frustration. She was worried about insurrection and betrayal, and so she was constantly in the presence of armed men, and only five trusted ladies-in-waiting were allowed into her private apartments. So, next time then, let's see if Mary's prince will return and help her soothe the troubled waters, and indeed whether the waters will allow themselves to be so soothed. I will be back in two weeks' time, and I then hope to start getting back towards three episodes in four or five weeks, but not immediately, but in the fullness. Thank you for listening, everyone. Good luck, and have a great fortnight. Bye.